everybody. Welcome to the Book Leads Impactful Books for Life and Leadership. I'm your series host and leadership performance coach, John Jermillo. This podcast series is about getting to the books that are at the heart of what the work is, what the lives are, that my colleagues, network, friends, um, what it is, the books that drove them, the books that have inspired them, impacted them. So these are all great leads to get to those books that had those values, those messages, things that have drive them in their work, again, life, personal relationship, what have you. So the categories that I cover, there are three. The first category is a book that they're schooling me on that I haven't read. Uh, a second one is where we both cover, um, we both speak to the book that we've read, whether specifically for the episode or if we've read it in a past life before this series. And then the third is when I speak to the author um, and or publisher of the book in question, just to kind of get an idea of what it is they want to bring to market, what the message is that they want to share. So in this particular episode, I will be talking to the author of the book that we're going to be discussing. And for this episode, my guest is Andrea Waltz. And Andrea is the co-founder of Courage Crafters, Inc. and co-author of the best-selling book, Go for No. Yes is the destination. No is how you get there. For almost two decades, Andrea has been teaching people in virtually every business and industry how to think and feel differently about failure, rejection, and the word no to achieve their goals and dreams. A member of one of the highest regarded professional groups of women in sales, Women Sales Pros, Andrea is considered a top sales influencer online, featured on lists curated by HubSpot, Salesforce.com, LiveHive, and many others. The book Go For No reached number one on Amazon's sales and selling list in 2010 and has remained in the top 50 sales books for the last 12 years, selling nearly 500,000 copies. And the Go For No strategy has been featured in online and offline magazines and journals, including Success Magazine, Inc., Forbes, and many others. Today, Go For No is a well-known methodology in the world of sales and widely recognized as the singular best program that deals with rejection in business. And I had met Andrea through this series uh, when she reached out about possibly discussing uh, her book uh, on the series itself. I looked into her background, read more about the work that she's done, the mission. So I'm excited to have her here and pick her brain on all things business and rejection and just kind of that fear of failure, uh, that failure, uh, the fear of no, everything that goes into it. Because even though it's it's business driven in your book, Andrea, it just obviously it's something that's so tied to who we are as people. So Thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks, John. I'm so excited to chat with you today. So I read your bio, but why don't we start off with, you know, who are you? Who, what is the work that you're doing? Um, I gave a good sense of your mission through the bio, but what kind of work are you doing? What kind of clients are you working with to carry out that mission? Yeah, it uh, it's changed and evolved over the last 20 years. My husband and I launched our company when we, when we launched initially uh, over 20 years ago, we were working mostly with retail organizations. So we would go in and um, get to know the vice president of training and VP of sales. And we were helping retailers deal with rejection from retail customers in that setting. And since then, we realized that, uh, and, and we had a specialty in retail, that was really our, both of our backgrounds were in the retail industry. The more we worked with retailers and the more go for no started to take off, the book started to get traction, we realized that this wasn't just a problem that was in the retail industry, which we were very aware of, because actually our book doesn't just mm -hmm. focus on that, but that it was a problem that anyone who has to face rejection has, which is all of us. I mean, if you want to achieve a goal or a dream or you have anything of any kind, fundraising for a charity, anything, you're going to have people tell you no. So I'm super, I'm super passionate about the topic and never thought I would be doing this in a million years. So weird to wake up every day and teach people about rejection and the power of no and all of that. I actually have a Bachelor of Science in Criminal Justice and wanted to be a and wanted to be a crime scene investigator. <laughs> so. so I usually do ask, like, what is it from your background that got you into this? But let me, before I ask, like, the background was, what the history of of you, your family, your education, whatever it was. First of all, um, very quickly, well, how, how do you think that that degree ties into this work? Like, what is it that drives you to study that degree, get that degree? And what is the common vein between that degree and this kind of work? Well, 
Honestly, because I'm a writer, I could make something up and I could come up with a good, <laughs> a good answer for you. Nothing directly. I mean, the truth is I went to school. I wanted to be a crime scene investigator. And while I was in college, um, the job that I had, I ended up getting promoted into management and, and worked my way up and met my husband and we launched our company. So there wasn't too much synergy there. Um, however, and I, I don't even, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh no, that's okay. I mean, the, I guess the, the best thing about it was learning how to communicate really. And I, I think for a lot of people who go to school and get degrees and you end up doing something totally different, at least in school, you learn to communicate your thoughts and ideas, which you have to have as a speaker and writer. But I don't even mean what specifically was used from your degree in your field. I'm curious, like what draws someone like you into the field of criminal justice, what that common vein is. Like, for instance, I'm just, I don't know, I'm, I'm throwing spaghetti at the wall. I don't know if it's, maybe it's just human psychology. You know, that human psychology that underlies criminal justice, obviously for common, you know, obvious uh, reasons. And then just the human psychology of how the mind works and how we interact in, in sales. Am I stretching that too far? No, I love human psychology. In fact, I almost got a minor in psychology. I took every, every elective I had, I, could, I would take psychology courses and I find it fascinating. And psychology and mindset is huge in the work that I do. But there is a reason why I was so fascinated and wanted to be a crime scene investigator. And the reason is I just wanted to catch bad people. Something happened when I was, I think I was about 12 or 13 years old. My mom and I um, were on our own. My stepfather made a lot of bad decisions, including selling drugs to an undercover FBI agent and basically got thrown into prison. And so we were fundamentally homeless and moved in with some friends of my mom's and uh, were kind of didn't have a lot of possessions a anymore. I mean, they were sold off in like one of those storage wars situations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the one thing that she did have was her mom had passed away a few years earlier and she had some of her uh, diamond rings that she had um, that she you know, left to my mother. And on one particular day, my mom decided that she, and she was where she would wear these diamond rings on her hand, my mom would. But on one particular day, she decided that the sweater she was wearing was going to end up catching on the ring. So she left these two precious diamond rings at home. And that was the same day that the house we were staying in was burglarized. Uh. And those things were stolen. Yeah. And later, uh, we actually went to a, um, big into a big room where the police had confiscated a lot of possessions from various robberies that had been happening around the the city and we looked through i mean there was there were hundreds and hundreds of pieces of jewelry and all kinds of things we never found anything but i was so um i felt so bad for her that it just made an impact on me and i thought you know the the best thing to do. I, I was like, I want to fight crime. I was like a Marvel character. You know, I want to, I don't want this to happen to people. So that was the, the moment where I thought, yeah, I want to be one of those people who can, can help uh, solve these things. That's, that's really why I got into it. And um, that was before the CSI TV show and all of that got popular. <laughs> yeah. All right. So well, I guess, I mean, because that next question was going to be, what is it from your past that led you to what you're doing now? But like I said, you were going into criminal justice and I can see that I can see my my kind of take is that I can see that I can see like in the degree for criminal justice, kind of protecting the innocent, those that get kind of victimized. And then I can see in the work, just my interpretation, just standing on the outside and just because I'm curious as hell. I can see kind of that continuation of protecting that person that maybe feels vulnerable about failure, about rejection, about that no. So, I mean, I think it ties in a lot. And I mean, you do have to be forensic in criminal justice as well as your business, as well as what you're selling the services to kind of present the best case to help you get to that. Yes. Am I 
far flung? Does it make sense? Well, I think it's actually fascinating, John, and I have never thought about it that way. But the way that you just framed it is, I think it's right on. I, I okay, never okay. looked at it that way. Um, but my motivations for the work that I do now definitely are that I hate to see people who shut themselves down, self-sabotage, who say no to themselves rather than having the courage to get a no from somebody else. And in the process, if you have that courage, then perhaps you will get those yeses. So I guess in in point of fact, you're right. It does go back to helping people, um, you know. Just empower themselves. Exactly. Uh, so what kind of, what is, is it training? Is it seminars? Is it uh, classroom work? What does the work look like? Uh, what kind of clients do you work with? And so that's evolved. We, as I said, we kind of transitioned to really anyone and everyone, you know, in, in every business and industry is kind of what we say. So typically our clients uh, are large companies who have a sales force, and that is for the speaking. So we'll go in and do a 60 to 90 minute presentation. But for individuals who stumble into our website, there's a path for them as well. And it starts with the book. And then we have an online training program that we created. We originally created this uh, like 10, 12 years ago with CDs, and then we finally put it online so that uh, people can you know, if they're not part of a sales force, if they're, say, an independent business owner, maybe they're an accountant, maybe they own any kind of small business that and they struggle with rejection and they struggle with reaching out to people that they can learn more of the go for no mindset. And then something that I've, you know, I continue to evolve and push myself to see how else can I deliver this message? How else can I get people involved? And one of the things that we did was we would have we had a 30 day go for no challenge, which was something that we we encouraged people to do on their own at the end of our um, CD program. And so during the pandemic, we turned that challenge, we, we changed it to 21 days, shortened it a little and uh, made it a little easier. Yeah. Um, we turned that into a workbook. And then this year I decided that I wanted to really bring that workbook to life. And so I've created a group coaching program for 21 days, we have people sign up, we get into a small group, we meet once a week. And we talk about we people are basically going for no that every day their assignment is track, collect your nose, track them, count them. And then we all have a discussion once a week about how that looked, how that felt, what's going on. And this last six months of doing this has probably been the coolest, most fascinating part of my work because when you just go into a company and you speak on stage for 60 minutes and you leave you might, I mean I've talked to you know a couple of people in the hallway I talked to the person who hired us but you don't get that really in-depth feedback and like you do when you're in something like a group coaching program as you probably are well aware it's like a, a totally different experience so it's really been eye-opening and and tremendous fun for me to watch people do this challenge. Now, is it more because we're coming, well, seemed like we were coming out of the pandemic, so you were doing more in person or because that's when you started doing the, gro the group coaching? So <laughs> I wanted to, I started the group coaching at the beginning of the year because I wanted okay. to just offer something new and, and different. And quite frankly, I wanted to see if I <coughs> could me. pull, Sorry. absolutely. I wanted to see if I could pull it off. I wanted to see if uh, if it made sense and if people got a lot out of it. And probably the biggest thing I've I've learned a, a lot from doing it, and I've learned a lot watching people get really uncomfortable, and I've seen them fall out of it because it is something that's so hard for people to want to push themselves to do. But there's always one or two people in the group who just they're consistent, they're in it, they are committed and they work through it. And then you have a, and then you have almost like a bell curve where, and then you have people scattered in the middle. Yeah. So it's been very interesting. Um, yeah. There's something about group coaching where I love coaching one-on-one, -on -one, but I love the fact that I can kind of facilitate a conversation where people learn from each other because the pandemic has shown me that we're not good at talking about ourselves, especially our fears, obviously. 
And I think that kind of environment helps more so than one-on-one just because it just it's a shared experience. People can be honest. People can see what other people are sharing. They can open up. I mean, from before the pandemic to now, I've talked to people about my own anxiety, their own anxiety. There's this like underlying condition where it's like the worst part about all of that is that you get that sensation that you're the only one that it happens to. So that if you're in a room with somebody and they share, you know, a bad experience, you're like, okay, like I, I don't feel so much like an outlier. So I can imagine that that's especially rewarding for you just seeing that cross interaction uh, with those in that group uh, session. Yeah, and it is. And oftentimes when people, what happens is when they start learning to go for no and they start learning to ask, one of the challenges in the challenges, not just to do it in your business. So it's whatever business you're in, it's how can you start hearing no more often? Can you start reaching out to new clients or past clients? There's all these different things that we talk about, but we also talk about getting personal no's. And what a personal no is, is do- it doesn't mean that it's um, that it has something to do with you physically, personally. It means it's a little bit of a safer no. It's a little bit of a fun no. So it might be asking for a discount at a restaurant or asking for a free dessert, or it's one of these things we call them personal because it's not related to your business. And people have these epiphanies when they start asking for things and, and whether it's business or personal, but the more they do it, they start having these epiphanies of, oh, this is why I've had this fear. We had a lady who realized that she looked up to her grandfather and she mirrored everything that he did and that he was very timid and a a non-confrontational person and a non-asker. And she really wanted to be like him. And she realized that's why she always shut herself down. But it isn't until people start (laughs) doing these things that they start figuring out what's behind it. I have two questions before we jump into the book. Um, The first one that comes to mind, because you mentioned um, the impact that somebody's younger life or phase of life has on who they are as an adult. Do you have anything? Do you have anything planned? Or am I putting you too much on the spot and asking, do you have any kind of program downstream, like younger people, uh, high school, college? Just because I think this is something that would benefit that stage, because that's where all those fears tend to start. So is there something that you may have that kind of addresses the adult, but it's like that two-pronged approach, address what the result is and undoing and unlearning those those fears, and then right. kind of providing the younger generations tools, a set of tools, learning those conversations where they can utilize those tools going forward in their personal life, career, work, business, what have you. It's a fantastic idea. And the answer is no, uh, because I'm going to wait until I get the 30 year old who's seriously messed up. (laughs) No, I mean, the reality is I'm in no way an educator. And I mean that in the traditional sense. And I don't I don't understand the um, that world at all. I've had people mention that before. And I think it's a really good point. There's no doubt in my mind you're right, junior high school, high school, college, that entire age is fraught with the building blocks of all of these challenges. Um, And I think a lot of the damage actually, and when I say damage, I mean the beliefs that we create is, you know, is is even younger sometimes. Oh yeah. Right. So, so that happens, but then of course we have so much fear of judgment when we're in that, uh, in those other years in the, in the high school years, it's not that it's not a possibility. I say that now, but I also never envisioned doing group coaching and now here I'm doing it. So you never know. Yeah. No, and I, I take that as you, I'd rather hear that than say, yeah, we're going to, you know, try it and see what happens. At least, you know, I can sense that you have that respect for what that responsibility is to work with that kind of population. So I appreciate that response. Uh, the other question I have before we jump to the book is, do you remember what it was that triggered you to jump into this field? Was it a specific moment? Was it specific events? What was it that took you to whatever you were doing previously to focusing on that um, go for no mentality or mindset? 
So two things. One is a story that my husband told me because he is really the creator of the go for no message. It's based on a on, on a story that we share in the book and it's based on a sales interaction that he had. So it's very sales based. But even before that, I have all been a people pleaser all my life and and completely uh, non-confrontational. Do not like confrontation. And I remember standing in a bookstore when I was in college and I looked down and I saw the cover of this book and it had something to do with getting everything you want. And I thought, wow, that sounds interesting. It was the first personal development book that really came on my radar screen. And it turned out it was a book called The Aladdin Factor. And it was mm -hmm. all about the power of asking that it, it and it was it was how to ask and when to ask and where to ask and why to ask and what do you do if you ask and you get a no and and why you know just everything to do with asking and it had never really crossed my mind that you could ask that that was a thing that you could do this 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 was a success secret in my mind and the aladdin factor is the idea of you know the behind the genie where you rub the rub the mm -hmm. um, genie bottle and the genie comes out and you just ask for what you want. And so that made a huge impact on me. And I absolutely fell in love with that book. And then a few years later, I meet my husband who tells me this go for no story. I never even thought about the Aladdin factor. But later, I, after we had been writing go for no, and we worked on it, and we were speaking about it, I realized oh yeah, this is the message that I loved and wanted and needed so much. And now I'm able to teach it. Did you read The Aladdin Factor or did you just kind of peruse through it? I did read it. It's okay. uh, years and years ago um, now. And it's written by uh, the guy who, the guys, I should say, both of them, who wrote uh, this, the um, Chicken Soup for the Soul, Mark oh, okay. Johansson and Jack Canfield. Yeah. Okay. And uh, there's- it's it's a fantastic book. Yeah, and that just goes to show you can read it. It's it's either a matter of you reading it long ago where you were just in a different phase. So it made sense, but it didn't necessarily click or that the delivery of the message, the way that your husband put it, then it clicked, then it then it meant something. Um, it's just fascinating how we read books so long ago, you know, say five, even five, 10 years ago. And then we can come across that message again and all of a sudden it clicks and it makes sense. But sometimes it is a, a better deliverer, if you will, of, of the message in your husband and how he shared his story. Oh, that is so true. It, 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 yeah. And I was so <clears throat> new to um, the idea that you could change your mindset, that you could think differently. Um, yeah. <laughs> So why don't we um, get into the book? If you could just kind of introduce it, um, give us a sense of what we can find in it, uh, maybe what kind of path you send the reader on, like what the arc is of the book, just breaking it down to see what the value is that we can take out of the book itself. So the book is short. It's probably the shortest book for any book you will ever discuss on here. Maybe. I don't, I don't know that for sure, but it's only 80 pages and it is a fable. And it's about a guy named Eric Bratton, who's a somewhat average, uh, not completely mediocre, but your run of the mill average salesperson. And he's also a, a golfer. He likes to golf. He goes to bed one night. This all happens obviously very quickly because it's a short book. Goes to bed one night. Yeah. He, he wakes up the next morning and he is in a fantastically beautiful house. He has no idea where he is. He starts hunting around the house. He's trying to look for clues. Uh, no one's there. And he realizes he goes into the library or this office. He sees books on the on the bookshelf. Um, the name on, on these books is, they, they appeared that they're written by him. He comes to realize very quickly that he is in a house that is owned by a 10-year in the future, wildly successful version of himself. So... He figures out where he works, this future him, calls him up, says, hey, I'm in your house. It's me. I'm you. We need to figure this out. And that's kind of the inciting incident. And the rest of the book is spent with these two versions of Eric 
figuring out what is it that makes this 10 year in the future him so successful? What was the thing that kind of set him on this path? And the answer is that the wildly successful version of him learned to go for no, learned to ask, learned to be willing to fail. The mediocre average version of him uh, has not at this point in his life. Now they, where this transpired, how this happened was an incident in their past, but the one version, the average version just kind of went on his way after this incident and the wildly successful version took it to heart and really started doing it. So in the end, uh, and at this point in the end, there's a little bit of a supernatural twist in terms of, is this real? Is this a dream? What does this mean? But the device that we use is really um, this idea that he's in, he can turn into this very successful person if he's willing to do this one simple thing. Yeah. And I mean, that's got to make you wonder what you would tell yourself if you could go back to 10 years ago. Um, it's a conversation that's come up on here a lot, actually. Um, and there's been no right, there can be no right answer. Each person's going to know what is meant for him or her. Uh, we've talked about, you know, had I known the lessons now um, or then that I know now, would I take that life? But then we we would say, well, no, because the lessons we didn't know then, the paths we had to take to get to those lessons we love so much today leads to now, you know, leads to the even the flow of a conversation between me and a colleague such as yourself, where if I had this kind of, I don't know, awareness, I'm not even going to say skill, knowledge, wisdom, but if I had a little more of the awareness that I have today uh, or then that I have today, I might not, I might not, uh, say, oh, I have time for a podcast series where I can talk to my network about the books that have influenced them, impact them. Um, it's just weird. I, I mean, is there anything that, not anything, because I'm sure we would all change, but what do you think about that? I mean, if if you were, if, I don't know anything about your life specifically, Andrea, but I mean, is there, would you, and it's such a personal question. But <laughs> well, well I, I completely know where you're going because most people, because this conversation comes up a lot with our book. Mm. And that is, you know, what would it be like if you could learn from a future version of yourself? And what would, you know, what, what, would, you, what would you imagine that you would learn? You certainly know what you would tell a 10 year in the past version. If you could go back and you could educate you 10 years ago, you'd say, stop waiting, stop dragging your feet. It's all going to work out, you know, um, this or that. It's hard to know what that person 10 years from now. And we also, to your point, I think we all recognize the idea that if you change something, that those experiences are what everything that is in your past now got you to where you are now. So it's hard to want to say, well, I would change it all. And then who knows where I would be. Right. Um, yeah. in, in the book, what happens is uh, the, the two characters sit down and they start talking and there's a, there's a very simple scenario that happens uh, that happened when they were selling suits for a living. And this, this is that go for no story I mentioned earlier where um my husband, Richard, is selling suits. This customer comes in. He buys this entire wardrobe of clothing. And the district man, and he's all proud of himself. And the district manager comes over and says, what did that customer say no to? And Richard says, what are you talking about? I sold that man uh, all of these clothes. It came to $1,100. What do you mean? What did that customer say no to? He bought yeah, it's everything. like, what does it matter? Like, yeah. Right. He bought everything I showed him, basically. And then the district manager said, well, then how did you know? If he never said no, then how did you know he was done? And then the district hmm. manager says, I watched you sell. You're not half bad, but your fear of the word no is going to kill you. I think if you could just learn to get over that, you could be one of the great ones. And so for these two characters in the book, because again, it's short, we've got to have them hit on it. They realize that the, and they both remember it, but the, the average person, the average salesman says, yeah, I remember that day. I remember that conversation. 
and he didn't change. But the wildly successful version of himself said, yeah, I remember that conversation. And the next day I decided to start going for no. I decided to not let no stop me. I hear no all the time. And so that in our book, we make that the defining moment where in this weird universe, the one continues on and the other goes to rapid success. But of course it's 10 years in the future because that's how we had to make it work. We didn't want yeah. to take the same person and make it some other dimension. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think that the key to the story though, in addition to the fact that it's an interesting concept that not a lot of people talk about this idea that you should want to fail, that you should want to hear no to be more successful is also that, a lot of people can tap into this average person. You know, we don't make him this superhero. We don't, it, I mean, it really is the Clark Kent phenomenon, right? All of the superheroes are always average people thrown into extraordinary circumstances. Yeah, it's like the, the hero's journey. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so that's who our character is. And we want people to relate to, to them. And we want people to, to close the book and say, oh, okay, I get it. So if this character got this go for no message, then I can do the same. I just need to apply it to my life. And I'm curious when you, when you work with clients, aside from, um, aside from the 60 or 90 minute presentations, when you have group coaching, is it one session? Is it one day? Is it multiple sessions across different days once a month? Like what, what does that look like to kind of get to the message that you want to instill in your clients and the people that are attending your your seminars, your classes? Well, I'm glad you brought this up because this has been a big challenge for me. I've really been working through how to best do this because there's two pieces to teaching go for no to people. One is, and I'm sure you have a lot more experience in this than I do. One is helping people understand the philosophy and the, the mindset and kind of everything that's the foundation of it. The other piece is, doing the implementation. How do you mm -hmm. challenge yourself to go for no? What does that look like? And what I'm finding is that even though people come on the calls and they've read the book, I always ask everybody, you know, have you read the book? Almost everybody has, or they've started it, or they're familiar enough with the concept because they wouldn't sign up and pay money if they, if they didn't know something. Yeah. Um, but what I'm finding is that I, kind of in my head have forgotten how new and big this concept is. So I've had to re recognize that I have to step way back and start an education process. There's a lot more education in it than I was prepared for. To me, it was like, okay, let's talk about how to implement. And, and it's kind of like um, the analogy is if you met somebody, a 16 year old, and you said, have you, you know, you're going to let them drive your car. And you said, have you driven before? And they say, well, yeah. And you go, great, let's hop on the freeway. You know, we're going to drive a hundred miles. And you think in your head, you're like, you've driven before. Of course, it's easy. You should be able to get in and drive and, and get off the exits and stop when there's traffic and switch lanes. You should be very good at this. Hopefully. But they're, but they're not because they, they don't have the experience. You, you, you are because you've been doing it a long time. So that's, that's what I'm learning, John, is that um, I need to have more foundation. So I'm, I'm working through that. But to answer your question, what it looks like is we do two one hour calls in advance of the 21 days. And then through the 21 days, we do a, a, uh, well, there's an introductory call. Then there's day one, day eight, day 15, and then a final call where we talk about Kind of what's happened in the challenge and it's just really interesting to see people's journeys because the idea behind the challenge is every day set a no goal set a goal for how many no's you're going to collect then go out and try to collect those no's and people come in with really high expectations for themselves they come in with expectations just up to here like i'm gonna get all these no's and it's gonna be amazing i'm gonna crush it and so a lot of what I've learned is I have to manage people's expectations of it's not that easy and you need to be, you need to recognize how challenging this really is and not to, I hate to disappoint people, but, but I, I've got to like manage their expectations. So meaning they come into it thinking 
if I work with Andrea, I'm going to be fine. It'll be, it'll feel okay to get no. So I'm going to try to get out there and get as many as possible. But then they realize when they get into the implementation that it's not, you know, it's easier said than done. Yes. You're still going to feel that sting. But if you keep working with these tools, that sting will get less and less severe. So they're exactly. just thinking that they're going to develop superpowers and, you know, one, two, three sessions or however many hours of the programming. Is that, is that what you mean? Yeah, that is, that's exactly what I mean. And that, and that uh, they, they're going to have enough time and there won't be, and that there won't be self-sabotage because there's a tremendous amount of self-sabotage yeah. that comes up during this process because of the sting, exactly as you put it were biologically wired to not get rejected. So they have, I think, this vision of I'm going to get all, you know, put this into practice. I'm going to I'm going to do it so much and so hard. Right. And so big. It's and to use another analogy, it's like saying right when you get the gym membership, you know, you're all excited and you go and you're like, I'm going to crush it and I'm going to lift. 80 pounds, I'm going to do this. And then you go to lift 80 pounds and you go like, wow, I, I can't even lift this. I've got to start with yeah. 30. This is embarrassing. And nobody, nobody wants to do that. They want the big results. They want the big change. Yeah. I mean, cause if you think about it, the person that's being, that they ask later, it's like, okay, somebody can do their due diligence and be reasonable about where they want to get the yes, but it might be a no, right? They're reasonable about their expectations. Then you see somebody that's just kind of like, I'm going to ask everybody for everything. They're not managing those expectations. Then they kind of look crazy, you know, because they, then it kind of seems like a game. Maybe nobody takes them serious if, if, they're, if they're really not prepared or doing their due diligence about what they're really asking for. Um, I can just imagine so many instances, so many situations with uh, low stakes um, mm -hmm. on the table and high stakes at the table, where if you ask for high stakes without kind of proving yourself beforehand, asking in the right way, somebody's going to think you're nuts by asking for the world without kind of doing the preparation. Mm. Yes. And that is... People have to right. use their best judgment, right? Because yeah. um, I mean, it, it is a matter of respect. I mean, it, there's one thing with somebody coming up to me, asking me for something, and I can tell they're serious. They'll be diligent about what they're asking for. Um, they'll be prepared. They'll respect whatever it is that I'm going to provide for them. But then you can you can tell when somebody kind of comes up to you with a sense of entitlement. So it's all about that messaging as well, right? Yeah. And part of it is also um, to get people comfortable with being messy and, and, and falling down. So when you say make a game out of it in a way, it's okay to make a game out of it. If yeah. that's the yeah. direction that you want to, if that's their direction you want to go, like a lot of people are using this to, um, in increase their prospecting activity. So it's like, they've got a, they've got a database of people. They've, they're terrified of making those calls or sending those emails and they're not doing it. So it's like, okay, this is, this is how you do it. You're going to, yeah. you're going to push through that fear of rejection, that procrastination, that call reluctance, all of that. The personal no's are the ones where it's like, yeah, have fun with it. So you ask for an upgrade, you're checking into a hotel, ask for the honeymoon suite. And you can do it jokingly if you want. You can say, hey, I'm going to challenge. I'm, I'm supposed to get rejected. I'm supposed to get no. Uh, so will you give me the honeymoon suite? Yes or no. You know, tell it yes or no. And they go like, no, we can't give it to you. Go, okay. Yeah. And make it a game. When you do have high stakes deals, when you have a, a something that you want to make sure that you don't want to necessarily just throw away and lose, then yeah, preparation yes. Um, making the considered ask, obviously that does come into play. So it's, I, I trust that people are able to balance that out. But one of the things is that, that I encourage them to do is, you know, don't, uh, if you have a choice, if it's between, I'm just going to drag my feet and keep waiting, waiting, because it's not the right time and it's not the right time and, it, and it's never the right time versus just go reach out to the person, make your ask. And even if you fall on your face, I think it's better. Like it's that's what I would rather have somebody do. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's like anything else in life, business, work, where you gotta have to take those um, calculated risks, where you know if it doesn't work out, your livelihood's not at risk, your your security, your safety's not at risk. Bruised ego, okay, but it's you know, food's not gonna be taken off the table, clothes isn't gonna be taken off your back. And when you say game, I I kind of read it in the right way, where it's like. A game is of strategy, putting yourself out there, trying new things, trial and error. But as you said, there are those low stakes asking for the honeymoon suite and high stakes where it's like a, a huge loan or, or something much mm-hmm. bigger. Um, but no, seeing it as a game where it's kind of disciplined, where you're taking steps, you're taking risks. I mean, that's that's a good way to see it as long as they have that understanding of what's on the table and what's not. So I like I like looking at it that way, in that way. A lot of people in our group, for example, and we talk about this in the book, we've got this thing that we call the five failure levels. And the five failure levels go like this. Level one is the ability to fail. It's where we all start, right? We all have the ability to fail. We don't necessarily want to fail. Level two, and we use failure and rejection interchangeably. Uh, and we use the word fail because we don't want to have the word fail kind of have power over us in terms of a word. So a lot of people say to me, Andrea, don't use the word fail. It's such a negative. It's such a horrible word. Well, let's, yes, let's use it. <laughs> let's use it so much. Yeah. And and, it, and count me as one of those people that doesn't like using that word. But in this yeah. kind of situation where you're trying to light a fire under somebody's ass as to what to avoid and they have that fear of because for me, it's like if I try something and it doesn't work out. I don't see it as failure. It's like, shit, I tried something. You know what I mean? Where old me didn't. I mean, there's value in, in falling down, getting back up. But I think there's, there is, there is some value in using that word failure because we're so scared of it. Yes. And that's, and that's the point to, to shake people up and to have people see you have the, that growth mindset of, I don't even see it as a failure. I just see it as a learning process. So for those people who it's a, a lot of, people, it's a very triggering word, right? They grew up with that mantra of failure is not an option, that that's the last thing that you can do. So you're going to do everything you can to avoid failure. Uh, And we say, you know, avoid failure, avoid success. If you're unwilling to fail, if that's just not a possibility, then you're going to shut yourself off from a lot of opportunity because you're going to look at something and say, I, that is not a sure thing. So I'm not going to do it. I'm there is that is not a guaranteed yes. You'll wait and take the safest opportunities, the safest yeses. And then when if you believe that everything that you've done, you've prepared, you've planned, you've strategized, and you're 99.7% sure it's a yes, then you'll go for it. Mm-hmm. And our position is no, you, you, the, the work involved to get to that 99% is too much. You've got to do a lot more asking. You've got to roll sometimes with 30% certainty or 10% certainty. Just like you never hear about an actor going on one audition. They go on a hundred, they go on 300 auditions. They get the numbers working in their favor. Yeah. It, right? It's a, it's a, you know, it's a game of numbers. Oftentimes it is. So, so back to the failure level. So level one is the ability to fail. Level two is the willingness which is where somebody says, okay, I'm willing to hear no more often. I'm willing. Level three is where it gets very interesting. That is the wantingness to fail. Meaning your head hits the pillow at night and you say, I never took one chance. I never asked anyone for anything. I never, I had, I had those things I wanted to do. And instead of being willing to hear no, potentially, I shut myself down and did not fail today. So the wantingness is, wow, I did a lot today. I called this person. I went after this um, big person I want to have on my show. I sent in the book proposal to Simon and Schuster. They're probably going to turn me down, but I sent the proposal. You take all of those things, right? You want to hit your head, have your head hit the pillow with those things having been done instead of giving yourself the no. It's interesting when you get to that point, Listen, rejection, no, failure, something not working out still sucks, no matter your age. But there is something about working towards and in that growth mindset, which I find myself in now, where I look at things, I look at projects, I look at collaborations, I look at partnerships, maybe expectations that I had, 
and things don't work out and it's kind of like, okay, that didn't work out. It's things you're like, man, why didn't it work out? Could I have tried harder? Was it something I did? But it's like all these cliches come back. Like the world is your oyster. It's like there's so much out there to get to. There's so much out there to try that you don't limit yourself to any particular experiences. But it's amazing getting to that point. I don't know when I hit it and I'm not perfectly in it. I still get phased. I still get that bruised ego. It still hurts sometimes. But it's amazing when, you know, after a couple minutes, a couple hours where you're like, okay, I got that sour feeling because something didn't work out. You're like, okay, dust yourself off and try again. And it sounds so fucking cliche, but <laughs> you see the opportunities that are out there. I mean, it's there for the taking, and it, but it is really a game of numbers. That, And that's the way I look at it. That's why I brought that up. The, the due diligence, Andrea, is yeah. just I'm not going to keep bashing my head against the wall. So every time something doesn't work out, I'm going to go back to the drawing board, see how I can craft it differently, maybe try different people. All it takes is like that one yes, right, to make all those no's worth it. And sometimes you tweak it from version to version. Sometimes you don't you don't even do that. Like it's the same thing, but you just happen to hit the right person. So it's a hell of a journey, but it, it's it's interesting how that works. You just get to the point in life where it's like, what was I waiting for? That's the most frustrating part about your message, Andrea, is that people realize like, <laughs> what the hell have I been doing my entire life? Well, what we've been waiting for is we wait, we wait because we've been convinced that we'll, we will be somehow more courageous tomorrow. Mm. Tomorrow is exactly. all, it will exactly. feel, we will feel more ready tomorrow. We will feel differently tomorrow. And so we've got to ignore our, ignore those feelings. But I will say, and you've brought up the, the sour feeling in your stomach and everybody has everybody has those things about their where rejection hits them in their body and and this is something that we don't talk about in the book at all the book is very much a a, a fable to get the philosophy mm -hmm. it's in the other things that we've brought out and it's one of the things that I love about this topic is that there's so many layers to it so the physicality is something we don't talk about really anywhere although I'm starting to in my in my group coaching which is that pain and and this is just from talking to people over the last 20 years doing this that pain will never go I, I don't believe it will ever go away I think it's absolutely rooted in our DNA yeah. it's there for a survival mechanism it's yes. there for your body to say listen this is probably not a good idea for you to do this over and over again, they yes. might, they might kill you tomorrow. Yes. <laughs> you know? yeah, exactly. If you ask too much, they might kill you, or you're going to, you're going to do something that's such a big mistake that you will die. you you know, your brain. Yeah. No, is, it's something, is, it's something I brought up ad nauseum on here is just our evolution and we're tribal. And if we try to get into a certain tribe and it doesn't work, you know, even if it's yeah. one person that you're speaking to, no company behind them and you want something and they say, no, that's still the other that you're trying to connect with. That's still the right. other that you're trying to work with, live with, whatever it may be. When they say no, I still picture myself as a caveman back in the day where when they say no, it's like, holy shit, I'm on my own. You yeah. still get that that same sensation. That sensation, exactly. So like that. you said, it's your body telling you, listen, be careful, be weary of this, be weary of putting yourself in this situation again. So I love that you brought that up. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and so that's something that we have to literally breathe through and work through and remind ourselves I'm warm, safe and dry. I, yeah. <laughs> this, this, this one, no, is not yeah. changing yeah. my state right now. And, and we have to learn to go for no smartly. That's something else we don't talk about in the book, which is going for no intelligently. And, and how do you do that analysis? How do you look at um, what you can change? From our standpoint, I will say this, and this is something we mentioned in the book. A lot of people, they do want to learn, but they learn they want to learn after doing it once, which does not tell you anything. That's not enough. That's like going on, um, you know, one audition or one interview, and the interviewer says to you, "You don't have enough experience. You don't have this. You don't have that." And saying, "Okay, I'm out. I I, I shouldn't even try to get a job in this field." Well, wait a minute. You should be going. If you go on 10 interviews and 10 people look at your resume and go like, yeah, you're not ready for this field, then okay, more evidence. 20 interviews, 30 interviews, a lot more evidence. You've got your data. Now you need to change course. Mm -hmm. 
but one <laughs> and too many of us because of how rejection feels too many of us get that one feedback and go you're not ready and they go like i'm not ready that's the yeah. end it's over that's not amen. enough data amen so wait, you were, I think before I interrupted with one of my tangents, I think you were at level three. We were at level three. Yeah. And I love okay. your tangents. So, the, <coughs> so level At least four. somebody does. <laughs> tangents are the best though. Tangents are, in my opinion. Um, so level four is failing bigger and faster. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a side jaunt to, as you are progressing up and that is going after the bigger fish, the bigger opportunities instead of always playing small, instead of, you know, simply um, playing not to lose, you're playing to win. It's what can, maybe there's somebody big out there that I can ask. Now, Andrea, the faster part just means don't wait as long, right? Yes. It doesn't, it doesn't mean Speed. rush into it unprepared, you know, it just means. And I like that you're a fan of preparation and I, and, and, and I, I totally agree. So it doesn't mean rushing into it, you are right, but it does mean, get the data. So using the job analogy, you know, don't a lot of, a lot of us, and it all goes to that, that fear again, it's like, well, I'll get one here and I'll get one there. It's no, let's get five today, 10, 10 tomorrow. Let's, let's do this with some speed so that we can fail fast, iterate, and then figure out how to change instead gotcha. of taking the slow, you know, the, the slow boat. Okay. So yeah, um, so bigger and faster is level four. And then level five is exponentially, which simply is a function of, of having a team. So okay. it's for people who are leaders in the companies. This is going to be your Silicon Valley examples where everybody's failing, everybody's innovating, uh, a sales team who's all going for no, what kind of results could they get all doing it together? Awesome. So Andrea, I'm curious in writing it, what did you take away from the book? What did you take away from the process? Did your, did your, obviously you believed in it because you started writing the book, right? But as you were writing it, did it hit differently? Did you believe even more in the message? Were there things you um, believed less? I mean, not even believed less, but just how did you, yeah. What, what did it change about you? How did you look at things differently once you got to the point where you crafted this book? How did, how did it change you? So let me tell you about crafting the book. So first of all, let me back up. My husband is the genius creative of the two of us. And he wrote the first draft. And he was the one who said to me, we should write this as a fable. I was completely against that. And I have since been proven very wrong. On that. How, how, just for the record, how did you want to write it? Just just straight up and... like this is go for no this is what it is blah okay. blah blah yeah okay. quite yeah uh point for point right just get get the information out there the one thing that um so he decided to craft the story uh, or to, to write the first draft we kind of came up with this general story and he wrote the book in 17 days gave me the first draft and i went through and and basically, and this is really how we often work together. He'll write the first draft and then I go through and make all of, all of these edits and all of these changes. Mm -hmm. um, I think the thing that was, that's always amazing is how much we were able to communicate in such a short uh, book, even though there are things today that we teach and train on, as I kept saying, like, this is not the book and this is not the book because there are so many layers to this and so many, I think, offshoots, still there's a tremendous amount um, that's in there. And uh, the thing that probably hit me the most was the ending, which is uh, this future version of our character. In order for him to exist, the average nor for that person who we've now come to kind of know and like in the book, right? Because he's really a separate character. In order for him to exist, this new, this average character has got to start going for no. He's got to live into and manifest this other person. And it's really powerful. Even when I read Richard's writing of that section, I literally cried. I couldn't believe it. It was so powerful because I think there's a, there's a piece of me that thought, yeah, I want to live into, 
that vision. I want, there's like that person I kind of want to become. And when you realize that it won't exist unless you start doing something and really take action, it's powerful. So that ending is probably my favorite thing about the book. Um, It's the thing that once you read it, you, I mean, the, the bell is on the bell can never be unrung. As they say, you can never forget this easy concept. And I think there's a lot of concepts where you read the book and you go like, well, what was it exactly? This is one simple thing. If you take anything away, it's just have the courage to ask. Well, I mean, that's, that's the difference between, I can appreciate both forms of the book. The one you wanted to write where it's kind of like, here are the points. Mm. For instance, here are the five levels of failure. And then there's, again, everything's going to stick a little stronger with the story. You know, that's the reason I wanted to do this series was getting my guests stories, their backgrounds, what they're all about, because even them sharing their book on social media saying, you know, this is the title, this is what it's for. You don't really get that sense until you hear somebody's story. Like people are going to look at it differently once they know what you went through in your past, you know, that you went into criminal justice for a certain reason. That one day in 2022, John explained to you how to connect the degree in criminal justice to the go for no, like I, just, I know. <laughs> just that story. There's something about telling it in story form that's just going to stick. Again, like you said, you can you can put yourself in that character's shoes and envision your path and what that could mean to you if you start uh, taking in those lessons. Yeah, I love that. So. so one thing I did want to ask before was how have you seen your work? How have you seen people's attitudes, uh, their expectations, maybe um, what they bring to the table? How have you seen all that change in the last two and a half years of this pandemic? Because I'm always, I, I guess you're like the perfect person to ask about this kind of thing only because when the pandemic started, I, I started attending discussions online, forum online, networking online, and people were were sharing more of their fears. They were being more honest. And I jokingly said in one of one of those conversations that, you know, we don't know if this is the end of the world or not. So, you know, get to what it is you want to do. What what are we going to wait for? You know what I mean? We all went home for two weeks and then I was on this forum, you know, two and a half months later. I'm like, we don't know where this is going. So why are we holding on to so many of our fears? Um, so what have you seen, if anything, in the last two and a half years, how have you seen your clientele shift, their mindset shift, their, um, I don't want to say bravery or courage, but their, their approach to it shift. Um, or, or, yeah. or maybe you haven't noticed anything at all. I don't know. Well, I guess I've, well, I've noticed a couple things, um, And it's been, and it was before the pandemic, and that is how this idea works with technology and in general. So the pandemic and the pandemic even just like made the technology the forefront, right? Um, And so a lot of times I think people think that they can hide behind technology. And that's probably the biggest thing that I've seen is that the more we get on Zoom and don't meet people face-to-face and all of that, the email, the texting, the social media, all of it, the bigger that it's gotten over the years. And now today, because of the pandemic, even more so, um, all of that fear still remains. It's just, you're just handling the rejection in different ways. There's still silence, (laughs) like no response. There's still rejection and people still have, then the feelings are exactly the same. So the technology hasn't really impacted it. I think to your point, though, um, the I have seen more people get better with uncertainty. And for that, I think it's been a blessing because we have all been, I think we all got a, a taste of how to be more resilient. Mm. And the fact that we all live with a, a greater level of uncertainty than we ever thought that we did. And so, and, and in pushing through that and in having to survive the, having to live through the pandemic, um, I think everybody has developed a certain better quality of resilience, but 
you said, or maybe you haven't noticed anything. I think the people who gravitate towards go for no tend to be more willing to admit their fears and raise their hand to fearing rejection. Mm -hmm. And so by the time I'm ever talking to somebody, it's different when I'm just up on a stage and the company paid for me to be there and everybody's being paid to sit there and it's like, you're forced to attend this. But certainly in the coaching program, I think people are, they've gone through a couple filters already. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it makes complete sense in terms of your speaking, you know, their 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 companies paying for them to be there or it's prepared as opposed to somebody coming to it, coming at it, into it from their kind of their own volition, their own understanding. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I mean there was there was a lot of obviously self-reflection, self-assessment during the pandemic and kind of realizing what it is that we want for ourselves. Hopefully that sticks around when we do come out of this, if we do come out of this. Um, but I think th- these are great tools that people can use just to take that that drive of the pandemic and kind of what it took away from us, realizing that um, when we go back to some kind of real normal, mm. that there's so much out there for each of us if we are not afraid of that, no. So I think that's such a great message. <laughs> yeah, and thank you so much for that. Um, and I think that's, that was the biggest thing. I mean, you look at this great resignation and everything. I see that as just yeah, people, I think I see that as just people going, you know what? I, I'm not, life is short and it's just too short to be doing something I hate. Yeah. Yeah. And again, hopefully that mindset sticks around, you know, not so drastic as quitting a job, but just in, mm-hmm. in every facet of their life. Um, Andrea, is there anything else that you want to share before we start wrapping up? Um, I guess anything my, at all. Well, my I, whenever I'm asked that, my favorite my favorite thing to share is just to remember that asking um, is a life philosophy, not just like a business or sales philosophy. And I think in general, most problems in your life, I, I believe, are caused by lack of good communication, lack of uh, uh, Mm. having courage to communicate, a willingness to communicate and asking, meaning getting your needs met. And it could be anything. It could just be asking your partner for something is part of being a really good communicator. And the more that you are willing to have the courage to communicate, to ask for things, to clarify things, the easier your life will be. And I pull some of that from the other, my absolute favorite book in the world, which is something I read 10 years after we really started doing go for no, which is called the four agreements. Mm, I got it right here. It's just as there you go. It's my absolute favorite book and that not taking no personally and being impeccable with your word, which is Mm. that communication goes hand in hand ties right into go for no. So that's why I say asking is part of that. It's weird. I, it's weird how this went from something that was kind of tr- transactional <laughs> in this conversation went from kind of, you come into a go for no, yes is the destination. I mentioned that it was sales. So it sounds transactional, but then through the conversation, it evolved where it is really self-care because there are many people out there that aren't getting the basic needs met, whatever they may be, because they're not vocalizing it, because they're not communicating right. it, because a, maybe they know they have these needs, but don't know how to vocalize it. Some people that I work with don't even know they have those needs. They know something's wrong. It's like, what the hell? I followed the script of college. I followed the script of work. Mm-hmm. Why is it I'm not happy? And then you kind of break down that they're they're on cruise control. They have tunnel vision. They're trying to stick to the script that somebody has laid out for them without kind of breaking that mold and and going back to who they really are. Cause a lot of times people go into jobs. They're like, okay, here's the, here's the job description. Here's my capability. Here's my desire. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to fit the job description. And Mm. then that difference, what is really them, what is really their value, their power, they leave on the sidelines. So I Mm. think a lot of this has to do a lot of it with self-assessment. What are really your needs? You know, it it may start with, oh, get that yes when you're going into sales. It may start with that ability to to work in that fashion and get to that sale of a service of a product. 
But I love how this came back to it is self-care. You really do need to make sure that you're not limiting yourself, holding yourself back from what you need. And sometimes we don't even know what we need. We need to stop and, and take a look around. It's evolved, John. Seriously, the first 10 years, very transactional. That that was like the core of our message. And to some extent, I mean, when we speak to a sales audience, obviously, it's much yeah. more so, right? Um, but I like to always push it in this direction, because I believe that if you can see the value in it in all areas mm -hmm. of your life, then you can start practicing. I, I, I love using the word practice. I want people to practice it like they practice yoga or practice anything else. Practice mm -hmm. it in all areas of your life and you'll get better. And you also get better Absolutely. at saying no as well, which yeah, is a whole that's... other show. I, I, I'm not opening the box. It's a whole other show. <laughs> I want to get yes on this side and I want to be able to say no to somebody else. But yeah, it's, it's yeah. absolutely because um, yeah, people try, people believe that being of service means giving completely, giving completely to somebody else, um, not leaving for yourself, making sure that others are taking before you. Mm -hmm. You're right. That's a completely different show, but it is definitely a footnote to this one where this is the kind of conversation you also need to have at the same time is being able to say no to somebody else um, when it kind of deteriorates what you're all about, when it may be mm -hmm. toxic, whatever it may be that goes against who you are, what you want to achieve. Um, so Andrea, thank you so much for sitting down for this conversation. Again, I knew it was sales based, but I love the way it evolved to that self-care and, and getting what we really need. So thank you. Absolutely. And again, the book is go for no. Yes is the destination. No is how you get there. If there's anything that I might've missed because I go on my tangents or you caught something that Andrea shared that I should have asked, please let me know. I'll reach out to her or I'll also have her contact information when I publish this episode on YouTube and through the audio channels. In the meantime, thank you everyone for watching and listening. I hope you took away from this conversation as much as I did and I'll see you in the next episode. Take care. Bye.